0: i 'm um, Judy Delgado i 'm the Director of the Macular Degeneration Partnership. I wanted to tell you a little something about what we do before we go on with our program. So the Macular Degeneration Partnership was started by the Discovery Eye Foundation about ten years ago, and what we do is raise awareness of this disease. Help people who have it and their families to cope with it. Give them information, links to resources. We go to Washington and advocate on your behalf for low vision. And we try to help with funding uh, research, as you heard earlier today. And the way we do this is our website, amd.org, where we have just tons of information for you. We've got an email newsletter that's free. You can sign up on our website. Uh, we have what we call our warm line. It's a toll-free number. It's in your packet. And if you go to our exhibit out in the courtyard, you can take my card and it's on that too. You're welcome to call us with any questions that you have or if you need some help with something. And then of course we're available on email as well. And our AMD toolkit is a packet of information that you will get if you call us and, and request it or go to the website. So we also do patient education seminars like this. If you have a senior group or a community group you work with and you'd like me to come out and talk about macular degeneration and bring some of our resources, just give me a call for that. We do have a local support group that meets at the Beverly Hills Library every month, and you can call us and have your name put on the mailing list so you'll know when that is coming. And then we do a variety of other things. And the reason we do it is because of you. I hear from patients every day things like, what we have here that they feel so much better that they've just been able to talk to somebody your doctors are very busy and they often don't have a chance to answer your questions and that's what we're here for and we we really want you to know that there is help for macular degeneration and there is hope so that is our mission and uh, I hope you will contact us if you need any assistance and we're going to uh, hear from Dr. Kent Small I think most of you have already Heard from Dr. Small. Um, he is very good at explaining things to all of us in a way that we can understand about the structure of the eye, the way the retina works. Um, so we're very pleased to have him here. Dr. Small is very well known in the retinal community for his work in AMD and in genetics. Um, he is the director of the Macula and Retina Institute in Los Angeles. And as I said, he does research. But I think the thing that we value him for ourselves is the way he can explain things to you, and he will be asking, answering your questions later on. I'm going to take a microphone with me, and uh, you can just think of your questions as you're listening to him. Dr. Small.
1: Thank you, Judy, and uh, I want to thank Tony and the Foundation for inviting me for this opportunity to join you today and share with you um, uh, some of the issues about macular degeneration. First, um, what is the macula? A lot of people get kind of confused about that. The, ma- the macula is a very specialized part of the retina, and the retina is like the film in the camera. The front part of the eye is used. Oh, I'd like to notice I'm not using any slides. From my speaking at uh, the Center for Partially Sighted and Braille Institute, they've kind of indoctrined me to when there might be people that are visually impaired in the audience not to use slides. That way nobody feels like they're missing anything. Um, so anyway, the macula is a special part of the retina, and it's, it's this real thin flimsy tissue in the back of the eye that the light focuses on. And the very center of the macula is the fovea, and that's where the 20-20 vision is. Now, the fovea is only about a half a millimeter in size. And as you move away from the fovea, the sensitivity of the retina decreases. Why is this so important? Just even a little bit of disease right in the center of the macula can wreak havoc with the central vision, which also brings up the issue the macula only involves about the, the central five or six millimeters of the retina. The retina's entirety is about 25 millimeters across. So, again, the macula is a very small part of the retina, but it's the most sensitive part. And in human beings, it's probably the most important part, because that's our fine, detailed vision, our reading vision, our driving vision, and most of the things that in Western civilization, most of the activities that we enjoy doing the most. So uh, the macula is very important for independence and living. So the macula, macular degeneration, is obviously a disease where the macula slowly, well, generally slowly deteriorates. Now, I would like to point out there are other diseases that affect the macula. They all cause the same type of symptoms. And some of them are completely curable and treatable, such as a macular pucker, which is a wrinkle in the macula. We can surgically go in and and peel this pucker and the scar tissue off the macula and get visual acuity improvement. Or macular hole which we can treat with a gas bubble in the eye and, again, get significant improvement in vision. So I bring this up because occasionally I see somebody who's walking around with a macular hole who thinks they have macular degeneration and nothing can be done. And occasionally we find people who think they have macular degeneration. They have a macular hole. We operate and uh, bring back their independence. So the sort of symptoms one notices in their daily living with any macular disease, but especially macular degeneration, Usually is first and foremost uh, uh, some central blurring in the vision where there'll be some small blind spots or like little smudge spots right in the center of the vision. And if you look just a little off-center, you can pick up what you're trying to see. But if you look right at it, it disappears or becomes smudged or blurred. This is also sometimes associated with some distortion in the vision, things that should be nice and straight like door jams, buildings, etc., suddenly start to have a little wave or curve in them. And that is a symptom of macular disease. Any macular disease can cause that, but again, it's most commonly age-related macular degeneration. Why? Oh, why is age-related macular de, age-related macular degeneration? Believe it or not, is important to your government. Um, it is the leading cause of legal levels of blindness in the U.S. as well as all developed countries where people live long enough. The our government's interested in it because uh, this disease alone could, in theory, bankrupt Medicare. So they they have a vested interest, although they're not doing it as much as we'd like, but nevertheless, they are aware of this, and that there is some energy going into this. The, um, the risk factors of macular degeneration, and Jill, after me, will get into this in more detail, but I'm going to just go through it fairly quickly. Number one is, of course, age. That's why it's called age-related macular degeneration. Um, probably number two is smoking, as far as environmental risks, and one of the few that you can control smoking increases your risk by forty times or four hundred percent. Smoking is terrible for the macula, and you know basically, when you go through the risk factors in my list of do 's and don 'ts in the in your handout, I sound more like a cardiologist at the end of the day, and you 'll see why and Number one is stop smoking. Um, it just increases your risk hugely for, for really bad visual outcomes. Number three would be genetics. And there are, depending on who you read, up to seven, seven different genes now involved in age-related macular degeneration. This is obviously one of the risk factors you cannot control. You cannot pick your parents. Um, although that reminds me of a, of, a, of a good joke. As a geneticist, um, um, uh, We're always uh, putting together these pedigrees and families, and we can tell if somebody is somebody's father or not in a lot of our genetic studies. We don't mention it to the patient, but we can tell in the lab. And uh, it's one of those things that um, there's some dispute sometimes about who the father is. And so one of the jokes in the lab is uh, um, maternity, who your mother is, is a matter of fact. Paternity is a matter of opinion. And there are some issues with this. Um, there are genetic tests that are currently available in CLIA-certified labs that are commercially available now. Insurances are not paying for them, and the, the cheapest one I found caught they'll charge you about seven hundred and fifty dollars. But it is available if you want to do that. It'd probably be more important for your children of, of an affected person than it is for the actual affected person to know. And then. Um, Uh, Another, we call it uh, a high body mass index. I I hesitate to call it obesity as a risk factor because there was a doctor who got sued for calling his patient obese in a medical record. Um, So we'll just call it high body mass index. But again, I sound like a cardiologist, don't I? Also controlling your cholesterol. Patients on statin drugs that bring cholesterol down have been shown to have a beneficial effect on macular degeneration. So again, I sound like your cardiologist, so I I make a lot of friends with my cardiologist colleagues. Um, We talk about macular degeneration in two basic clinical forms, dry and wet. Now this has nothing to do with how your eye feels. If your eye feels dry or wet, that's a tear film issue, a corneal issue, an eyelid issue, it's something else, but it's not macula. The macula has no feeling at all. It has no pain, it has no sensation, no cold, And all it does is affect vision. So if you've got other weepy, teary, itchy eye problems, it's not macular degeneration, it's something else. But nevertheless, the terminology we use to describe the clinical manifestations of macular degeneration are wet and dry. Wet means there's a leaky blood vessel, and when we look into the back of the eye, we see blood and fluid and stuff leaking out, and that's why we call it wet. It's purely a clinical descriptor for the clinician. Dry means we don't see that. And that's about as simple as as the descriptors go. However, the two different manifestations of the disease have uh, some significant issues. Dry macular degeneration, which is the more common, 85% of people have dry. It is progressive, but it's very, very slowly progressive in general. Uh, One study from about 15 years ago said basically from the date of diagnosis to the date of six lines of vision loss on the eye chart, and six lines, you know how each line is a little bigger, well, if you go up six lines, it would take you nine years to lose vision up to six lines, and that 's on average if it stays dry now, the problem is fifteen percent of people almost everybody starts off dry, fifteen percent of people with dry turn wet, and wet is is uh, by and way the the, the the major cause of uh, severe visual impairment in, in macular degeneration. Dry usually, usually causes mild impairment, although if it exists long enough, 10, 20 years, it can cause severe vision loss as well. But when it turns wet, basically the dry macular degeneration has weakened this one area under the retina that then allows these blood vessels underneath to pop-through and grow up under the retina and leak and bleed. Now, um, in, in my handout and out in the, on the amd.org desk, there's all these Amsler grids. They look like little pieces of graph paper. And this piece of graph paper, people, one of my first things on my list to do is check your Amsler grid daily, one eye at a time. This Amsler grid is basically to detect early the onset of wet macular degeneration. If it stays dry, the dry will be so slowly progressive, you will not notice change on the Amsler grid. If it turns wet, wet can happen pretty suddenly. Leakage and bleeding in the macula that can happen over a matter of a few days, a few weeks, and typically, well, not enough, but it can be picked up on checking with this Amsler grid. One eye, again, one eye at a time. That's the key. Um, so, any sudden change in the central vision, any sudden change on the Amsler grid, you need to get into your ophthalmologist and get a good examination to see if there's any evidence of the dry turning wet. Um, Yeah, the, um the tests that we do for macular degeneration, when you go in to get, get evaluated, uh, first of all, you, you gotta have, you gotta get dilated. Um, occasionally I get a new patient that comes in who does not want to get their pupils dilated, and that's a little bit like going to an OBGYN doc and refusing to uncross your legs. Um, you you gotta get your eyes dilated for us to get an adequate examination of the back of the eye. And it's a little obnoxious, but it's tolerable. So it's called a dilated fundus examination. The next test that we usually get, particularly if we're worried at all about the dry, turning wet, is to get a test called the fluorescein angiogram. Now, initially, that sounds like a scary term because angiogram, most people think of coronary angiogram, cerebral angiogram of the brain. Angiogram just means an image of blood vessels. And with a fluorescein angiogram, it's it's an image of blood vessels with an intravenous water-soluble fluorescein dye injection in your arm vein. So it's a fairly simple office procedure. It does, however, turn your urine a bright yellow-orange for a day or two, which is, um, if you're not warned about that, can be fairly um, scary. And it also makes your skin look a little jaundiced. A uh, small percentage of patients get a little nauseated with it. About 1 out of 2,000 have an allergic reaction to it, hives, itching, wheezing, that kind of thing. And that's really the only bad thing that can happen with this with a fluorescein angiogram is an allergic reaction. Uh, the newer tests that have come out, um, well, relatively new, um, is called OCT, optical coherence tomography. I've been using it for about 10 years in my practice, but it's... Just escalated tremendously in part because the technology has improved a lot recently. And the simplest way of thinking of an OCT is sort of like a high resolution ultrasound of the macular tissues. And so it shows you the thickness of the macula. And it'll show you if there's fluid leaking under the retina that we can't see clinically. And so most everybody with macular degeneration winds up getting a series of these OCT tests. They're non-invasive, and you don't even need your pupils dilated for it most of the time. And so you just kind of look into this camera. Little laser lights go around, and it gives us these images. So it's a really uh, safe, easy, uh, relatively low-cost, and very effective test. It can pick up basically the resolution is down to about 2 to 3 microns on these tests. The retina in the macula is about 200 to 250 microns thick. So we get a really uh, high-resolution, detailed image of the macula, and oftentimes with the OCT we can see layers of fluid or thickening in the macula that we can't appreciate on just a dilated eye exam. So the OCT has, has really it's, it's become a very critically important test now uh, clinically. There's a couple of other tests that that I, I particularly like that are fairly new. One is autofluorescent imaging. Uh, macular degeneration is really a disease of the retinal pigment epithelium which is under the neurosensory retina. And it's a single layer of cells, and it can be, using various uh, wavelengths of light, can be caused to, you can cause it to fluoresce and image this. And when these cells die, you can it shows these areas of death as little black spots very clearly. And it can also show you cells that are becoming hyperfluorescent or kind of white, and they're probably the cells that are going to die within the next year or two. So it's a way also of predicting and looking at the progression of the macular degeneration. Another test I like for macular degeneration is called microperimetry, and it basically measures the sensitivity of the macula. One of the big problems with macular degeneration is you get these little blind spots in the vision, and with dry macular degeneration, they usually will make a donut around the very center of the macula, and so the patient's central vision could be very good on the eye chart, could be 20-20, but they have this big blind spot of donut around it, which makes their vision very, um, uh, difficult to use adequately for driving and reading, particularly, because when reading, you're scanning. And if you have these blank spots in your vision, you lose your spot where you're scanning not infrequently. And so microperimetry can help us monitor that. Now, the treatments for macular degeneration, for dry macular degeneration, the uh, treatment is a strong word, um, management. Ways of managing it is probably the better way of, of thinking of macular degeneration because, as you've seen so far, we do not have a cure yet. Uh, there's a lot of work going on thanks to this foundation and NEI and other groups, but there is no cure yet, so we're managing it. And the best thing we know for dry macular degeneration are those things that I've listed in, in the handout, which is uh, the vitamins, which uh, Jill's going to go over a lot of this in more detail, but I think repetition is important. It's basically C, E, beta carotene, and zinc, New studies out now showing B6, B12, and folic acid. Um, and then uh, from some other studies, you know, eat spinach seven times a week, uh, fish twice a week, uh, DHA or, or um, fish oil capsules, and uh, baby aspirin every day. And those are the best things that we know to slow the progression. None of them stop it. None of them reverse it. But that's the best we know at the moment to slow it down. And just the vitamins alone from the original studies we know slows it down by 25%. So it's it's really significant. You know, patients are taking, I get this all the time. My patients come in, they've been taking the vitamins for, you know, six months or a year, and they're getting kind of tired of it. And they're saying, oh, you know, I'm losing vision, it's not helping. I said, well, you don't know, your vision would be probably worse right now had you not been taking it. And it's hard for the individual to know that. But we do know from good studies from the NEI, National Eye Institute, that those vitamins alone slow it down by 25%. So it's worthwhile. Um, with wet macular degeneration, this is the new blood vessel growth in the macula that leaks and bleeds. Uh, we do have several uh, treatments for it. Again, none of them are a cure. And all of them are basically spinoffs. Yeah, all of them are basically spinoffs of cancer research. Um New blood vessel growth, the original thinking with cancer research is if you can control the blood vessel growth to a tumor, you can control a tumor. And so most of the we, – we as ophthalmologists, as retina specialists have benefited from that, and our patients have, by taking what the cancer researchers have learned and have applied it to retina and ophthalmology and macular degeneration specifically. Back in the olden days, ten years ago, all we had – yeah – and things have changed a lot in 10 years. Actually, things have changed a lot in the last five years. But 10 years ago, all we really had for wet macular degeneration was a hot laser to burn and cauterize the leaky blood vessels, which permanently made a scar in that area. And there was a higher recurrence rate, and it caused a lot of scar tissue. A lot of people lost vision. Statistically, from studies, we knew they lost less vision than they would have had they not done anything. So it was, at the time, better than doing nothing. But that was the best we had, and it was miserable for everybody, for the patient, for the family, for the, for the doctors. Uh, in 1999, a new treatment came out based on um, cancer research called photodynamic therapy. Uh, and with this, basically a, a drug called visudine is infused in the arm vein. And it's a light-sensitive drug. And as it starts to flow through the little leaky blood vessels in the back of the eye, you can activate that drug with one specific of one specific wavelength of light, which is a laser. That's what a laser is. And so, you, as this drug starts to s- circulate through the leaky blood vessels, you set them up at a laser and activate the drug. It's a cold, so we call it a cold laser because it doesn't burn anything, it doesn't destroy anything. All it does is activate the drug. The activated drug then binds to the to the lining of the leaky blood vessels and damages them and closes them. That's the theory. By itself, it was better than doing nothing. People still lost vision with this. There were some inflammatory issues with it as well. So that was the state of the art in 1999. Along the way, back from uh, actually some of the early studies I was involved in when I was a professor at UCLA, uh, were a class of drugs called anti-VEGFs. VEGF is vascular endothelial growth factor. And basically a Genentech researcher about 15 years ago identified this protein as something that makes blood vessels grow. And if you don't want those blood vessels, that's really bad. Um, And so they developed, Genentech developed another smaller protein that gloms onto this VEGF and blocks it. And uh, this drug was first tested in colon cancer patients by Genentech, and it was found to be quite effective in metastatic colon cancer and prolonging life. Again, it was not a cure, but it helped to control these tumors, these colon cancer tumors. Well, the boys at Genentech, in my opinion, over-engineered things. They thought a little bit too hard and decided that the... And this drug was called Avastin. Um, They decided that Avastin molecule was too big, so they re-engineered it as a smaller molecule that could be injected in the eye to treat wet macular degeneration. Well, as And that drug is called Lucentis. Well, as Lucentis was being researched a colleague and friend of mine at University of Miami started injecting Avastin, the one that was used for colon cancer, into patients' eyes in 2005, and he presented that at a meeting in Montreal. And by uh, July, uh, myself and Bob Avery up in Santa Barbara were some of the first in the country to use this. And within another three months, half the retina doctors in the country were using this. And it works darn well. It works very well. Um, so as a result of this, and about a year or two later, the Lucentis finally became FDA approved. So Avastin is a larger molecule in my opinion, it lasts longer than Lucentis, it costs 25 well, 30 dollars a syringe. Lucentis, which is the smaller molecule and has gone through extensive clinical trials and has FDA approval, and you have to give that one about every month.. Um, <clears throat> uh cost two thousand dollars a syringe. And this is where why Medicare should be extremely scared, because this disease alone, using lucentus alone, could bankrupt Medicare. That's another another issue. I'm not here to save I'm not here by myself to try to save Medicare. That's not my job. It's above my pay scale. Um, so anyway, as a result of this we now have two anti-VEGFs on the market. Both are considered standard of care. One is considered FDA approved one is considered off-label, but still standard of care. Uh, my personal bias is I like Avastin more. It's a larger molecule. You only need to inject it about every six weeks, whereas Lucentis, you need to inject it every month until you get the leaking blood vessels to stop. Now, these are injections in the eyeball, by the way, for those of you who aren't involved with this, um, which is a really creepy-sounding kind of thing. You know, I think there was a nursery rhyme that gave this a really bad name. Uh was it? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Well, we do it. I do, I don't know, 10 to 20 of these a day now. Um, And we numb up the eye. It's a sterile procedure. It's an in-office procedure. I tell my patients it takes about five minutes, four minutes and 58 seconds is prep. And it it usually doesn't hurt. Sometimes there's a little pressure and a little aching and sometimes a little headachy thing going on for about five or ten minutes afterwards. And it feels a little scratchy and irritated for the rest of the day, and usually by the next day it feels feels okay. And this is the standard of care now is these anti-VEGFs. Um, and they're relatively safe. The biggest risk to these injections is infection. In my hands, it's one out of 10,000. Uh, so you're more likely to get killed in an auto accident driving to my office than you are to get an infection in your eye from the injection. So it's a relatively safe uh, treatment and is, is very effective, except for the fact that it doesn't last long enough. And that's why you have to keep coming back in. You got the, the drug only lasts in the eye for a week or two at most. And so you got to keep coming back and keep getting checked and keep getting all these tests done. Because statistically we know if you get the leakage and bleeding to stop, it will come back again, just a matter of when. And you want to catch it early so you can hop back on and get the injections going. One of the ways that I've found to help decrease the the need for such frequent injections is by combining the photodynamic therapy with the anti-VEGFs. And by my data, basically, a patient comes in, gets an injection. I see him back in six weeks. There's an 80% chance he'll need another injection because the leakage and bleeding will not have stopped yet. If you have the combination therapy, we decrease that down to about 40 to 50%. Now, the other thing is particularly with patients with a new leaky blood vessel for the first time, which we call treatment naive, never before been treated, uh, 80% of those patients get a significant improvement in vision with these injections. And really, uh, these anti-VEGF treatments were really the first time we saw our retina patients getting improvement in vision. Generally speaking, retina doctors are kind of like a neurosurgeon. You know, we have the high-risk problems, the bad outcomes, the bad visions, you know, chronic diseases which nobody else can or wants to treat. That is how retina has always been perceived in the past. Ever since these anti-VEGFs came out, these anti-VEGF injections came out, we are now actually making patients' visions better, and that's really exciting for us. Um, there's, um, oh, one of the other things I wanted, well, nah, we'll get into that later. The um, There's a lot of research going on, which will be uh, talked about some this afternoon, uh, some of the drugs that are being researched are uh, against VEGF. There are some other targets. Um, there's a new drug called infleximab that goes after tumor necrosis factor alpha. It's on the market, again, off-label. I've tried it some with some res- positive results. And there's another drug that's been on the market for a long time uh, that I'm uh, trying occasionally called methotrexate, which, which also works for a different pathway. And these are all, again, injected in the eye. But there are some other drugs in the pipeline. There's one that's even an eye drop, which would be kind of nice, so we would have to get away from these injections so much. So as we are waiting for all this research that's going on to come as you know, the FDA is a very cumbersome, slow, bureau, bureaucratic governmental agency, which I'm sure is only going to get better. Um, you yeah, know the, the FDA yeah, the, yeah, we doctors have kind of a love-hate relationship with the FDA. Um, you know, the FDA sees themselves as the protectors of the American people. And they the, they have one shining, glowing moment in history where they were right, and that it was they kept thalidomide out of the U.S. If Thalidomide, if you remember back in the 50s and 60s, was used as an anti-nausea medicine for pregnancy. And they were using it a lot in England, and a lot of babies were born with one arm and one leg and missing appendages and things. And so thalidomide never got to the U.S. because the FDA was so slow and bureaucratic uh, and blocked it. And so they still point to that today as their big victory. Um, you know, one of the few good things that's come out of the HIV-AIDS uh, era was that helped actually to push the FDA to get some drugs uh, fast-tracked, as we call them. And some of the uh, drugs that are being researched for macular degeneration are on fast track. And so while we're still waiting for these drugs to go through the FDA and for research to be done and, and completed and to show some benefits, you know, what do we do with our patients in the meantime who have lost vision? And I basically refer them off for uh, low vision aids, um, you know, the technology behind the low vision aids. And uh, I know folks from Braille and Center for Partially Sighted are here today, and I encourage you to visit with them. Uh, they have a wonderful technology. The technology and electronics are getting better all the time. Um And they were just uh, so supportive and helpful with my patients. So I really appreciate uh, the low vision efforts. And Dr. Bill Takashita and and Goldhaber will be talking more about the low vision aids this afternoon, which I think is a critical part of the complete care of a macular degeneration patient. And I guess we can open it up for questions.
0: Uh, If you randomly tested, like, 100,000 60-year-olds, what percent would you find drusen?
1: Yeah, that's uh, – in 60-year-olds, it's, uh, you'd probably find drusen in about 5%. 70-year-olds – well, let me put it this way. You'd find evidence of macular degeneration in maybe 5% of 60-year-olds. 70-year-olds, it goes up to about 20. 80-year-olds, it's up to about 30, 35. 90-year-olds, 40. So so the incidence of mac- – I didn't mean to talk about this, but the incidence of macular degeneration is becoming epidemic in this country in part because our cardiologists are helping us live longer. In the process of living longer, it's also exposing us to more risks of, of age-related macular degeneration. But the, the curve for the age of onset, you know, it just goes up exponential after about 65, 70.
0: What's the likelihood, if you have dry AMD, if you've had it for an incredibly long time, let's say about 10 years, 15 years, what's the likelihood of that turning into the wet kind?
1: Um... Overall, overall, the 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 simple answer is 15%. If somebody truly, if somebody has dry age-related macular degeneration that is fairly severe and has involved the central macula to the point that the vision's, you know, quite impaired at this point, my impression is is that those folks actually have a lower risk of developing wet because once the central macula is gone, it seems like the stimulus for developing these new blood vessels seems to be lowered.
0: I'm an optometrist in my office. I give out a, a macular degeneration brochure, uh, the Amsler grid, and a packet of uh, <laughs> vitamins. This is the first time I'm hearing that I cannot have my patient detector changes for a dry arm. What's your suggestion for
1: well this is the first time you 've heard that you 're
0: I cannot have my patient detect their changes for the dry art
1: Oh, the Ambler grid 's only sensitive to fifteen percent. The Ambler grid is actually a lousy way of detecting macular degeneration, but it 's the best we have at the moment there 's um, a very good researcher in Tel Aviv, uh, dr. Lowenstein who 's developed um, a couple of devices that some people have in their office now for detecting. It's sort of like a computerized Amsler grid, and it's supposed to be more like 75% sensitive. Um, And she's in the process of developing a uh, a device for folks to use at home. But yeah, the Amsler grid in general is a fairly—it's a—it's a a fairly insensitive way of detecting macular degeneration, in my opinion, and and as shown by research. I think, to be honest with you, I think one of the real values of the Amsler grid is just to have a patient cover one eye and the other eye every day because it's amazing how many patients don't do that. You know, you get, I'm sure you see it, we get patients come in, they're, you know, legally blind in one eye, and obviously have had disease there for probably five or ten years, and now they're starting to have something going on in their their fellow good eye, not realizing they've been blind in this eye for the last ten years. So just having patients cover one eye or the other and check one eye at a time, I think, is some value of the Amsler grid.
0: Good morning. Thank you for all the uh, invaluable information. I'm diabetic, and I get an annual diabetic retinopathy test. Is there a higher incidence of people with diabetes having macular degeneration?
1: Um, Generally, no, is the short answer. The longer answer is uh, folks with diabetic retinopathy. Let's back up for the audience. Um, Diabetes mellitus causes high blood sugar. High blood sugar damages blood vessels throughout the body. The retina is one of the few places that we can see directly blood vessels in the human body. And so we see this damage going on. And diabetics can get damage of the blood vessels in the macula, which causes diabetic macular edema, or swelling in the macula, which causes a lot of the same symptoms as age-related macular degeneration. So I I bring this up because there's a, a, a lot of diabetics think they have macular degeneration. They don't. They have diabetic macular edema, which is, which is there's some treatments for it that can be helpful. Um, the actual incidence of a diabetic getting age-related macular degeneration is a little bit lower than the average population. And at one time, there was a clinical gestalt that, the, that diabetes may have actually been protective for macular degeneration. But the problem with the diabetics is you've you got to get that macula checked every year or more often depending on how bad the diabetes is in order to make sure you're not getting diabetic macular edema.
0: I think we have time for two or three more questions. Hi. Um, I'd like to know, I have been tested uh, genetically about, I don't know, about ten years ago, and I did not have the gene for macular degeneration. I have now recently been diagnosed with it. I, I have a feeling that I have had it for a while. I've had the grid, the wavy lines, you have a halo, um, that kind of thing. And I wanted to know, if, it, if the gene was negative, how is it that a person could get it so soon after that?
1: Um, that's, a, that's a really good question, and we probably ought to talk some separately afterwards, um, because 10 years ago there were no genes known for age-related macular degeneration. None. The first gene identified was complement factor H and that was in 2004. I think the publication came out in 05 though. Um, and that was and it's not really a one-for-one gene relationship. It's a risk factor. It just having this polymorphism, this change in the DNA increases your risk by a certain percentage. It's not like if you have this polymorphism you're doomed to get the disease. It just increases your risk. And that's true for all of these genetic tests that have that we have now for or these different genes that are involved in macular degeneration, they can't be really viewed as a as a one for one quid pro quo kind of deal. They're they're just risk factors, same as smoking. Um, although genetics, you know, we've learned through the genetic genetics research in the last four or five years that uh, genetics plays a much stronger role than we had previously assumed. Matter of fact, from basically the genetic research that's gone on. My view of macular degeneration now is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the macula with a genetic basis. Because basically almost all the genes involved in this disease are involved in inflammatory pathways in the body, primarily complement factors. Um, And there's some drugs that have been now in research that are designed with that specific target in mind. So we should talk some, because I'm curious to know who told you there was a test 10 years ago and who did it. Well, maybe it wasn't 10 years ago. I may have been wrong on that. Maybe it was 2004, and I will
0: Really? Okay, okay. Very <laughs> reputable. Is the effectiveness of these new eye injections dependent on how advanced the macular degeneration is?
1: From the patient's perspective, absolutely yes. These injections, all these injections do is stop new blood vessel growth and bleeding. For patients that come in and have already had an extensive amount of scar tissue from previous bleeding or from previous hot laser, these injections don't help that at all. And so any vision that is lost from the scar tissue, any vision that is lost from previous laser, these injections will not get that back. If, some of the, if vision is lost because of fluid under the macula because of the leaky blood vessels, that's what we can get back and so i i 'm fairly aggressive with this. If I see somebody with an old scar that 's been there for ten years and they 've started bleeding again off and it 's usually off to the side of the scar, I, I think you should inject them because you 're limiting the size of the scotoma of the blind spot and a lot of my patients uh, back particularly when these injections first came out I mean a lot of my patients had had long time preexisting disease with a lot of fluid there and a lot of scar tissue. And yeah, we took them from count fingers at two feet to 2400. What they would really describe is that they felt like their peripheral vision, their side vision improved because it basically shrunk the blind spot in the center. But yeah, these shots, nor any other treatment that's on the, in the pipeline at the moment, will get rid of that scar tissue. In my opinion, the, the future for the cure is and probably going to be in stem cells, in dry macular degeneration and in wet, because basically, particularly in dry, yeah, there's loss of tissue. You need tissue replaced if you want to get any kind of return of vision.
0: My question is, could you clarify, please, if you do, in fact, have the gene, but it's not a quid pro quo for MD, is it a predisposition? I mean, does it have that effect?
1: Yes, absolutely. But it, it's, um just want to correct kind of the phraseology. It's not the gene, It's like seven, depending on who you read, ten. You know, it's a whole slew of these genes that impart risk. And, yeah, the real value, probably the real value, if you wanted to go out and get genetically tested right now for $750, um, is really the children of the affected patients to, to get an assessment of what their risk is down the road. You
0: mentioned that uh, drugs that bring cholesterol levels down can be helpful. Is it the drug, or is it having lower cholesterol?
1: That's a good question. We don't know. But statin drugs... <laughs> you know, there, there was a big study at, at NIH, uh, at the National Eye Institute, called AREDS, Age-Related Eye Disease Study, and I think I, some of this is in my handout. Uh, and it was a well-done study that you paid for. This was a tax dollar funded, pa- taxpayer-dollar-funded kind of research uh, it's like 6,000 people that they've, they've followed now for I guess about 15, 15 or more years. And the major purpose of that study was to determine if these, if vitamins, CE, beta-carotene, and zinc, decrease the progression of macular degeneration. Well, along the way they collected a lot of other data and information on these 6,000 people. And so basically a lot of the data is, is, is Ann Coleman in the audience? A lot of, good. A lot of the, <laughs> She's going to be here later talking about glaucoma and she's an epidemiologist. A lot of epidemiology is very soft science. I'm a molecular geneticist. I I'm, you know, I want to look at DNA sequence. I'm a very hard science kind of guy. Epidemiology is very soft. It shows associations. It doesn't show cause. So the best we know is that statin drugs have a positive influence on macular degeneration. So, yeah, because the issue, part of the issue, I mean, I occasionally get a patient that wants me to put them on a statin drug for this purpose, and if their cholesterol is normal, is it worth the risk of putting them on? Because there are some side effects of these statin drugs. Is it worth the risk of putting them on a statin drug for some unknown risk of what it is, what your risk is with a normal, normal, or normally low cholesterol level? So I usually I basically tell them to go talk to their cardiologist about it. Here's an epidemiology question. Oh, uh, oh, I thought you were going to say you're an epidemiologist. I was going to I'm a geneticist. Uh, related to the question over there, uh earlier, if uh, drusen are diagnosed at, say, age 40 or below age 50, does that change the risk of progression to a wet MD or to the severity of the dry MD? Drusen under – drusen even in the 50s is very unusual. It's like 1%. It does happen. Yeah, it does happen about but I'll tell you most of the people that come into my office saying, "Oh, doctor found some drusen and told me to come see you." Look back there and it isn't it isn't drusen, it's something else. And there are other diseases, particularly central serous chorioretinopathy, which is a transient macular disease, usually in the 30s, 40s, sometimes 50s that causes some fluid in the macula for about a month, then it goes away, but when it goes away, it leaves all this little pigment stuff in the macula, which then as you get older, which, which usually doesn't cause a problem. But then as you get older, people look back there and go, oh, you got pigment and stuff. This is macular degeneration. When it's not, it's just an old footprint from, say, central cirrus. So most of the people that come into my office with, with drusen in their 50s, it's, one, it's usually not drusen, something else. Uh, two, it does happen, and it does happen, particularly in people with a positive known family history, you know. Um, and what their risk is for developing wet versus staying dry, I'm not... Familiar with that. Are you, Jill? I'm not, I'm not sure that that study's been done.
0: Well, we know we could go on and on and ask questions all day. Remember, we have other speakers, and you will have other chances to ask questions, too. We're going to take one more question, and then we need to move on. Do you know anything about um, protein that cleans off the rods and the cones? Because I understand that one of the problems with macular degeneration is all the, uh, the dirt that develops on the rods and cones which makes it difficult uh, for C. So I understand that they're working on some kind of
1: protein. Uh, A protein to clean off the rods and the cones? Um, uh, Indirectly, no. But one of the theories behind macular degeneration is the photoreceptors, which is in the neurosensory retina, is kind of... sitting into the retinal pigment epithelial cells the retinal pigment epithelial cells are gobbling off the ends of the photoreceptors all throughout the day and it's the fo- the retinal pigment epithelial cell we think is the really defect in macular degeneration is that they're incapable of properly processing what they're gobbling and so as a result they spit out at the back end waste product which are drusen that we were just talking about, and there are these little yellow deposits under the under the macula, and that's usually the first sign of macular degeneration. And there's protein, there's some lipids and other stuff in there too. And so there have been some, there are drugs in the research pipeline, which Dave Boyer will probably talk about later, that are um, designed to try to uh, get rid of these drusen. Uh, one of them is actually uh, copaxone, which I think Dave's going to talk about later, uh, which supposedly, it's a drug for multiple sclerosis, which is another one of these strange inflammatory immune diseases. Um, anyway, to make a long story short, uh, some Israeli researchers had this large MS clinic, and they were looking at the retina, and they thought they noticed the drusen going away with, on patients with MS using capaxone. So then they put a bunch of patients on capaxone, and it's a pill. Well, no, I'm sorry, it's a shot. And it's a shot. If you have MS, it's a shot every day. And this little tray of shots is, I think it's around $2,000 a month. I forget. Anyway, for AMD, they put them on these shots once a week. And over a very brief period of time, four months, they they showed evidence that maybe the drusen were disappearing. Well, this report came out, capaxone's on the market. So I talked a few patients into using it, and I've had some patients on it for a year, and I've noticed absolutely no change at all. And if I've got to use some kind of, fancy computer imaging software to look at the changes, then, you know, uh, it doesn't make any difference to the patient, and it's really expensive. So there are drugs, but there are drugs that are being developed to try to achieve, I think, what you're talking about. But they're all in, in a research phase.
0: I want to thank Dr. Small very much. Thank you so much.